take your Bibles with me this morning and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, the last chapter of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. As we continue our series looking at the church and what the Bible has to say about the church. What is the church and what is she to do and what is she to give herself to? And specifically right now, we're looking at the purpose and the calling of the church. And last week, we highlighted that the chief calling of the church, universal church, and therefore for every local church, is the worship of God. That is the primary way in which we glorify God. This morning, I want to do something I don't normally do and read to you a phrase from Hindu philosophy. This particular phrase from Hinduism says, Dependence on others makes us lose, while reliance on self gains for us everything. Dependence on others makes us lose, while reliance on self gains for us everything. Sometimes we might hear that statement and we say that sounds less like a religious philosophical statement and more like a corporate business model. And sometimes we might hear that statement when we say, what's wrong with that? Maybe that's how I was raised. To be self-reliant. To be independent. To, to make my own way and to stand up and, and take care of my own self and fight for my own responsibilities and my own independencies. What's wrong with self-reliance? Truth be told, there is much wrong with self-reliance. And we have conditioned ourselves in Western society, largely just in even in general human thinking, to think that self-reliance is the goal. When in fact God's Word says that self-reliance is dangerous. Destructive. Deadly. Self-reliance manifests itself in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fall. Self-reliance manifests itself every day in our lives when we think that we can ultimately make it on our own without God's help. We don't need to worry with seeking God's wisdom in this decision or that choice or this moment of life. We'll just function how we think we should. We should do what we think is best. That's, that's the plague, the cyclical plague in the Old Testament book of Judges. Every man does what is right in his own sight. That is self-reliance. I have the ability, I have the knowledge, I have the wisdom to live this life in my own power. What's most alarming is that that thinking has subtly made its way, infiltrated itself into the church. Especially in our context and in our society, most Christians view their own Christian faith as a self-reliant sort of faith. And they actually need to be reminded today, God's people actually need to be reminded today that it's not God's design for you to be self-reliant, that we are dependent creatures. And we are first and foremost dependent upon God, aren't we? For every breath that we breathe, for every every truth that we glean from Scripture, it doesn't come from our own 
cleverness, or intellectual capabilities. It comes purely out of the gracious hand of God. But furthermore, we are also dependent on each other. It is God's design that we live together in Christian fellowship because we need each other. It is just that simple. So self-reliance, individualism, isolationism, independence of self is not God's design for the Christian life. The Christian life is meant to be lived in relationship with others, other brothers and sisters to the point that you will not flourish in your Christian faith without the help and aid of other brothers and sisters in the church. Now that shouldn't be a surprise to us, should it? Our whole entire faith begins on this footing that we are dependent. As we consider the Gospel, the, the underlying current, bottom line theme of the Gospel is that we can't make it on our own, right? That left on our own, we've, we've fallen, we're sinful. We've transgressed a holy God. We've gone against His law. We've rebelled against His instruction. And therefore, we deserve what? Punishment. We sang about it this morning. Wrath is what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. And that death brings about the wrath of God in eternity. All have sinned, Romans 3.23, and fallen short of the glory of God. When we're left to our own capabilities, we incur God's punishment. We're dependent on Christ, aren't we? To relieve that punishment, to remove that wrath, to save us. But even to hear that gospel message, we're dependent on what? The church to proclaim it. In every way, from the beginning of our faith, all throughout the rest of eternity, we live in a constant state of dependency. Which brings me to my next point in this series on the church. What is her purpose and her calling? Well, it is the edification of the saints. That's the historical kind of technical phrase, edifying the saints. We might simplify that and call it caring about the spiritual well-being, spiritual growth, spiritual maturity of one another. The church is in the business of glorifying God by making sure we are all growing spiritually. Now this word edify, it means to instruct or benefit, especially morally or spiritually. But we know that spiritual growth, that, that's an English modern day definition of edify, we know that biblical edification and spiritual growth is much more than just morality, isn't it? When we talk about spiritual growth, we talk about matters of the heart. We're not just talking about behavior modification or behavior change. We're talking about bringing the whole person, the whole being of an individual in line with God and in line with God's Word. That's what it means to grow in the grace of Christ. And the church's purpose and the church's calling is to glorify God by helping every single one of us grow in that grace. We've used this concept. We see this concept mentioned in several places in Scripture. 
Sometimes it's you, we use the word discipleship to refer to it. Other times we'll use a technical term like sanctification to refer to it, which means we're being conformed into godliness, into Christ-likeness. We're starting to be molded into the image of our Savior. In fact, church, we are even saved to that process. That's part of the point of your salvation is that you'll cease being like the old fleshly worldly you and start becoming like the new heavenly you made in the image of Christ. But again, sanctification, discipleship, spiritual growth, however we want to phrase it, edification. It's so much more than just acting like Christ. And it's so much more than just being holy and righteous. Although it is that, it's nothing less than that. When we talk about spiritual growth this morning, we are also talking about loving God with our whole heart. We're also talking about adoring God with our entire being. I don't want you to confuse what I'm saying. I'm not just calling you to live a better life or to live a a more moral life or or to, to just watch what you say and watch what you think and all of those things. That's the bottom line, most basic thing I'm calling you to. But in reality, the Scriptures, when it calls us to grow into Christ's likeness, when it calls us to grow into to spiritual maturity, it's calling us to love and adore and obey and submit and serve God with our entire being. And the church has as one of its significant great callings the unique task of helping every member grow in that spiritual way of treasuring Christ above all else, including yourself. Now, as we survey the New Testament, second to glorifying God in worship, we find that the most attention is given to the spiritual well-being of the people of God. In fact, that's largely why the New Testament is written, isn't it? To instruct Christians and therefore instruct the church on how they can live and how they should live to glorify God. That living, again, extends to the very soul of who we are, not just the external actions. And my goal and hope and purpose this morning is not just to give you areas where you should grow, because those areas are basically endless, because we need a lot of help and a lot of work. But I want to show you rather that it's the purpose of the church generally to be involved in your life and you involved in the church's life for the sake of spiritual growth. So not so much that you need to grow, you do need to grow, and I need to grow, but that it's the business of us collectively to care about the growth of one another. And we begin looking at that in Matthew chapter 28. At the very beginning of the rumblings of the birth of the church, we find this great commission in Matthew 28, verses 18, 19, and 20, given from our Lord before His ascension to the disciples and by extension to the church. And in this great commission, we find an obligation and a responsibility to care for each other. 
And the kind of care that's supposed to be exemplified among the people of God is a care that extends far deeper than just casual interaction on Sundays. Often when we come to consider the Great Commission, we consider it solely in a light of evangelism. And it is a passage about evangelism, isn't it? Take the message of Christ to the whole world. But embedded in this, and indeed it's the central point of the Great Commission, that we disciple. Look in verse 18. Jesus came and said to the disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Isn't it, isn't it fascinating how Christ describes the work of the church to go into the nations? It's not just sharing the message, although that's implied. He doesn't reduce it to that. He takes it to the next level. He raises the standard and says, disciple every person. So if we stop short of discipleship, we're stopping short of the Great Commission. If we are only a people who speak a verbal message, and we should at least be that, but if we are only that, then we are not doing what the church has been called and commissioned to do. We are to, verse 20, teach all that the Lord has commanded. We are to instruct, to disciple, if we want to really reduce it, just simply means to follow Christ with with everything in every area of life. We, as the church, are to help brothers and sisters, help new believers and old believers, both alike, follow Christ in every area of our lives with everything that we have. We are to make disciples, which is a lifelong process for us all that includes many differences and variables. Takes all forms and shapes and sizes. It's a startling reality, isn't it? to realize that, biblically speaking, we as a church are not doing what we're commissioned and called to do if we're not concerned about the spiritual growth of every one of us. That means church is so much more than mere attendance, right? So much more than merely having our names recorded on some list. That means what we give ourselves to corporately as a church, what we put our stamp of approval on is so much more than just quick events or programs or this, that, or the other. At the very definition of our calling, at the very definition of why we still exist in this world, is the spiritual growth of one another. The very reason we unite together is for the sake of the spiritual maturity of one another. The early church knew this quite well, and they practiced this. In Acts chapter 2, specifically verse 42, we find them devoting themselves to all sorts of things, primarily to the apostles' teaching and other things that enable their spiritual growth. Community, prayer, breaking of bread, sacrificing for each other. All to say that the church carries a unique and partial responsibility for the spiritual well-being of the person next to you in this room. And church, we are not just called to care about the spiritual well-being, 
But we are called to act on that care for the spiritual well-being of one another. Which means we are to invest in one another. And put action behind our desires. Oh, that the people of God would see that our holiness, our righteousness, our growth in grace, our growth for the love of God is not something private and it's not something we leave up to the individual to do on our own. It's something that takes every one of us. It's the business of the church. In simpler, more personal language, if I'm going to grow in Christ, I need you. And if you're going to grow in Christ, you need me. And that's the whole analogy of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 being the body, isn't it? The body is only as healthy as its sickest member. And it's only functioning as well as its weakest member. Indeed, Paul goes on to say, you have been given spiritual gifts, not for your own upbuilding, but for the upbuilding of your brothers and sisters in the church. Church has, and belonging to the people of God, has morphed into a less than desirable practice in the last century or so. Where it has largely become event-oriented, attendance-oriented, and less a matter of engaging in life with each other. Well, the Scriptures are abundantly clear. If we're going to exist in Christian family relationship together, we have to care about the very heart and soul of one another. And what does that require? It requires actually doing the hard work of letting somebody else dare enter into your life. And it actually requires the very, very difficult work of entering into somebody else's life. Right? We're tempted to think, I've got my own problems. Why do I want to care about somebody else's problems? I can't figure out this thing on my own. How can I help somebody else figure it out? But that's our calling. That's our privilege. That's our joy. Opening up. Involving. Knowing the state of the heart of the person sitting next to you. Knowing the condition of their soul. Knowing the struggles they go through. Knowing the ways that they are strong. The gifts that they possess. Let's look at a few other passages. Probably more clear than Matthew 28 is Hebrews chapter 10. So if you'll flip to Hebrews 10, or look on to somebody else who's sitting next to you who's flipping there. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. A text of Scripture that's explicitly talking about gathering together, meeting together in a regular, consistent fashion. And in verse 24 it says this, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We exist in corporate fellowship in this world before Christ returns for this purpose, to meet together and in that meeting together to stir up one another and encourage one another. 
especially in connection to love and good works. Which is another way of saying we care about helping one another, aiding one another, growing obedience to God. Christ is coming back. That day is drawing near. How do we prepare ourselves for it? By being with the people of God. And when with the people of God, growing in the grace of God with the help of one another. This means, church, that when you belong to a church, that church is permitted to some real serious degree to be able to speak into your life. And to speak into your life with an element of authority. Speak into your life with care and gentleness and direction. That you permit brothers and sisters in fellowship with you to examine, to instruct, to guide and direct and influence and yes, even protect you for your own good. We'll talk about that a little later. Another text of Scripture very quickly. 1 Thessalonians. If you'll start flipping to the left of your Bible. It's a small letter that Paul wrote. There's 1 and 2 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you keep flipping to your left, you'll encounter Titus, 1 and 2 Timothy, and then 1 and 2 Thessalonians. The T letters. In the context of chapter 5, particularly verses 1-11, through 11, we find Paul referencing the day of the Lord again. So let's pick up in verse 1. He says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, There is peace and security then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, because of all of this, encourage one another. And build one another up, just as you are doing. Church is to prepare herself for the coming of the Lord. To be ready for the day when the Lord returns. Not to be surprised, but to be expecting it. And how are they to be ready? And how are they to be expectant? And how are they to live and and conduct themselves? Well, they are to encourage one another. They are to build up one another. As these believers were obviously doing. Growing again in the grace of Christ. The Bible is loaded with this phrase, one another. 
which highlights the serious communal element of our spiritual development. We need community, Christian community, Christian fellowship to flourish in the Lord. Isolation is not how we thrive. Isolation for the people of God is not optional. I don't want to look at every passage that talks about uh, interacting with one another, but I want to look at a few, if anything, just to beat you over the head with it so that you know how important it is. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How do we avoid hardened, being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? It's being exhorted by our brothers and sisters as we interact with them and live with them and fellowship with them and gather with them. You think you can overcome sin on your own? You think you're strong enough? You think you're powerful enough? Don't be so prideful. Don't be so foolish. We need each other. James chapter 5, right after the book of Hebrews. Verse 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What's James implying there? He's implying that we care about the way that each one of us are following and walking with Christ to the point that we go after one another who are wandering off the path of righteousness. We have relationships where we can speak into one another's lives. We're so involved with one another, we know what's going on. We actually allow people to look in and examine our hearts. We actually care enough about one another to look and examine their hearts so that we know whether a brother or a sister is slipping into sin and if they are, how they can be best brought back. 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 7, 8, 9, and 10. Peter tells his readers, the end of all things is at hand. So be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, as the end draws near, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. How are we to live in this life waiting the impending return of Christ? It's in constant fellowship, relationship for the sake of enabling spiritual growth. For the sake of us being conformed to the likeness of Christ. Colossians chapter 3. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Romans 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. 
and on and on and on and on and on. The Bible talks about the importance for the Christian soul to be living in Christian fellowship. Regular, consistent, constant Christian fellowship. Church, we need each other. We need each other beyond being just casual acquaintances. We need each other beyond just having casual encounters. Spending no real time together. Not knowing about the lives of one another. Not knowing about the cares and the fears of one another. Church, that's not only wrong. But if God's design is for our spiritual growth to take place in the context of the church, well, it's not only wrong, then it's also dangerous for us to not have deep, sincere Christian relationships. A few more verses to emphasize the importance of the church as a whole caring for the spiritual well-being of each and every member. I want to look at a few passages where we are told that is the desire and purpose of a pastor. Your pastors, your church leaders, their job is to care for your spiritual well-being. And certainly that must mean it's true for the church as well. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29, Paul says this, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this reason, I toil, I labor, I wrestle, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. What's the desire of a pastor? It's that everyone might be presented mature in Christ. That everyone might grow in the enjoyment of walking with God and knowing God and discovering the glorious truths of God. Galatians chapter 4. Paul's lamenting the spiritual condition of the Galatian Christians. In chapter 4 verse 19 he says this, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. Here's a pastor who's looking to believers and he's saying, I am in the pain of childbirth. My soul is crushed. It's yearning. It's an anguish. Because Christ is not formed in you. Philippians chapter 1. Just trying to give you a sampling here of the varied ways in which a pastor's desire is expressed for the spiritual growth of the people God entrusts to him. Philippians chapter 1 verses 9, 10, and 11. Paul says, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. How does a pastor pray for his people? He prays for their growth. 
doesn't he? He doesn't pray for their comfortable living. He doesn't pray that they may be wealthy. He prays for their spiritual growth in Christ. 1 Thessalonians, a passage that comes to my mind often as a pastor. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, he says, Paul says, You know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul, how do you feel about those Christians you have charge over? How do you feel about the believers, the brothers and sisters that you're responsible for? He says, I feel like a father to them, longing to instruct and lead and develop a life worthy of the calling of God in them. Earlier in this very same passage, he's even likened himself to a mother. Verse 7, we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, being so affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Pastors love God's people. And the main way that that love comes out, and the main way that desire is expressed, is in longing for exhorting, encouraging, and developing their spiritual growth and maturity. So not only is your spiritual well-being a personal matter, in the sense that you should care about your spiritual development and growth in Christ, not only is it a corporate church matter that the church should care about your spiritual well-being, it is a pastoral matter. Your pastor should care about the well-being of your soul that you're growing in the grace of Christ. And one final passage to emphasize this. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them because they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. Notice in that text it says, and it's concerned with your advantage. The advantage of Christians. And that advantage is wrapped up in their, the care of their soul. How are they going to have this advantage applied to them? How are they going to have their soul cared for? It's by allowing their leaders to joyfully care for them by submitting to them and following them, listening to them as they instruct them in the truths of Scripture. All of this church to say, look how wrapped up the life of the church is in the concern for each individual Christian's spiritual growth. It's unmistakable. And, and you can't ignore it. from the, the ministries we conduct to the, the very way that we let people as individuals into our lives to what we expect of our pastors. Pastors are not managers, are they? They're not administrators. 
or, or event coordinators. They're shepherds who care for your soul. And what does it mean to care for your soul? It's to make you and help you grow in Christ's likeness. Why does the church exist? To entertain? To tickle ears? To make us feel better about ourselves? Absolutely not. Why do we call people to membership? Why do we gather regularly? Why do we call people to fellowship regularly? Why do we say that relationships matter more than programs and events? Because we need one another for our spiritual growth. And spiritual growth is where we exercise our salvation and where we find the joy of walking with God. Now, real quick, let me, let me tell you of the goals of spiritual growth. So I want to I want to flesh them out just a little bit so you know exactly how we should be and what we should be pursuing in terms of spiritual growth. Again, this is more about the heart than it is just about actions, though actions are included. Spiritual growth exists in the heart long before it manifests itself externally. So let me give you three goals, then let me condense them, and then let me tell you why these are the three goals. The first goal in spiritual growth for you as an individual, and then for us as a church concerning individuals, is that each one of us grow in sound doctrine, which is right belief and understanding of the truth. Now that's much more than just intellectually embracing knowledge, isn't it? When we talk about each one of us being sound in our doctrine, right in our belief, we also mean and primarily mean loving the truth. We no longer despise the truth. We no longer hate God's law. We delight in God's law. We no longer reject God's direction. We like God's direction. In fact, we're so crazy to even ask for it. That's what it means to be right in our belief. Not just intellectual assent, but loving truth. The second goal is right practice. We desire for our lives to come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, don't we? Self-reliance is no longer an option for us. We submit ourselves to Jesus. We want to be shaped by Jesus. We want to live under His government, His instruction, His rule. Thirdly, a goal for spiritual growth is proper sentiment. And what I mean is loving what Christ love and loves and hating what Christ hates. Treasuring what Christ treasures and rejecting what Christ rejects. Delighting in what Christ would delight in and thinking on what Christ would think on. And rejecting worldliness. It means bringing our emotions and our affections and our feelings and our pleasures and our pursuits and our desires in line with Jesus and letting Him shape those things. Now, we can summarize all three of these things to general Christ-likeness, can't we? That is the goal of spiritual growth. Christ-likeness. Being like Jesus. Godliness. Holiness. Righteousness. Purity. All of these things. But the reason in highlighting them distinctly, separating them out into those three areas, is to say, to highlight to all of us, that our entire being is what matters in terms of spiritual growth. Our mind in sound doctrine. Our behavior in right practice. 
our very soul and spirit in proper sentiment. Spiritual growth is, yes, living rightly, but it's also thinking rightly and understanding rightly and desiring rightly, chiefly longing for God. And why are these the three goals? Because these are the goals that encompass our whole being and therefore glorify God, don't they? Why do you exist? Why are you alive? Why were you born? Why were any of us created? To glorify God. And we glorify God when our whole being, our whole self, is brought in alignment with Him and with with His Word and, and treasures Him above all else. So we seek to let our minds be shaped by Christ, not by the world anymore. Jesus changed my perspective. Change my outlook. Change my worldview. Change what I think about. We desire our practices to be brought into alignment with Christ, not the world, not ourself. From the way I walk to the way I talk to the things I laugh at to the way I, I work at my job to the way I sit to the way I stand to the way I sleep. Jesus, You form it all. Our sentiments. The world no longer tells us what is lovely or what is beautiful or what is worthy or what is desirous. Christ does, doesn't He? Jesus tells us what is valuable now. Jesus tells us what is lovely and what is pure and what is good and what is right. The world says, live how you want. Divorce your spouse. Cheat on your spouse. Cheat on your taxes. Make a bunch of money. Those are good things. Succeed. Christ tells us God is lovely. His Word is lovely. Obeying Him is lovely. This is what John the Baptist called in Matthew 3.8 and Luke 3.8 bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what He instructed the Pharisees. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Which means repent because you're imperfect. Bear fruit because you're being sanctified as you walk with God. Spiritual growth is bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. And letting our lives be transformed by our relationship, not just with God, absolutely, but also with each other. Enabled by the Spirit who produces love in our hearts for one another. You and I both need each other. Real quick, how does the Bible talk about this sanctification or spiritual growth coming about in the church? What are the means of edification that the church should employ to enable and encourage spiritual growth in every one of us? It's important for you to know this so that you keep the church accountable and on the right track in our practices. The first one is by relying on the Spirit. Submitting to the Holy Spirit. The church must collectively, individually, and with exhortation, encourage us all to submit to the Spirit's sanctifying work. Galatians 3.3, Paul says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You and I growing in Christ's likeness is not a 12-step program. And it's not buying a book off of a shelf that tells us how to be better at this or better at that. 
It is primarily, fundamentally, a submission to the Spirit's work in our lives through conviction and instruction and encouragement. Another way that the church is to bring about spiritual growth in her members is through preaching and teaching and Bible study. We tell every new member who's joining when we sit down with them that we expect all of our church members to be as faithful as humanly possible to Sunday morning worship. And the reason is because, number one, it's the only time a week we ask that our entire church body gather together to worship God. And also, because it is the most formal, God-ordained moment of the preaching and teaching of His Word. And you will not grow without it. But why do we also teach the Bible at other times? Why do we also find joy and encourage our Bible study groups on Sunday mornings? Not just out of tradition or ritual, but because we really believe that when believers come together and sit under the teaching of God's Word, they grow. Would you, would you just even right now consider joining one of our Sunday school classes? Think about the benefit. Not just for fellowship or numbers, but to be exposed to formal biblical teaching. Discipleship is, and spiritual growth is so much more than intellectual things. It's so much more than, than just the brain, just the mind. But it is never anything less than that. And true spiritual growth will always begin with a right understanding of the truth and being exposed to that truth, taught that truth, having that truth expounded. Uh, real quick, a few other ways that the church enables spiritual growth. Church discipline. Probably your favorite subject to study, isn't it? One of the most encouraging books out there is a book written about church discipline in Baptist life from 1795 to the year 1900. It's a thriller. You, you wouldn't pick it up on your own unless it's required of you in a seminary class. But it's actually a very insightful book that tells us the church was thriving when she was healthy. And she was healthy when church discipline was regularly practiced. In fact, much of what the church faces today in terms of negativity, false teaching, false practice, seems to have come about around the, the time the church quit practicing church discipline on a widespread scale. More on that in another, another sermon. But church discipline isn't a, doesn't have to be a scary subject. It exists for the sake of loving one another, protecting one another, restoring one another, helping one another come back to repentance. The church must, must guard her doctrinal purity and practical holiness. And she carries the authority to do that through church discipline instituted by Christ Himself. Fourthly, the church enables spiritual growth through regular fellowship and community. This seems to be obvious, right? That's what essentially the whole point of the, 
the message has been. And yet, it's worth highlighting again that there's a difference between simply being together and actually being involved with each other. Again, that will be fleshed out in another sermon, but for now, let it be enough to say you must commit to being with God's people. You know, some of the most encouraging moments in the life of a church are the 15 minutes before a service and the 15 minutes after a service when God's people are interacting. And they're interacting informally and casually, but out of love. They're meeting one another. They're asking questions. They're answering questions. Prioritize being together. Not just sitting in the same room, but being together. Finally, for this morning, worship. Worship is a means of enabling the spiritual growth of the church's people. Because as we're brought near to God and to consider His holiness, we're affected by that, aren't we? We don't encounter God's holiness and walk away unchanged. And so when we collectively attempt to lift ourselves up to the glories of God, we help one another, we benefit one another in growing spiritually and in grace and in relationship with God. So, all of that to say, church, spiritual growth of every individual Christian is the business and calling of the church. What does that mean? It means, number one, we ought to be in the church. It means, number two, we ought to let the church be in our lives. And let our lives be in the church. Number three, it means we ought to probably reprioritize our lives a little bit and restructure some things so that we can fellowship with the saints, so that we can learn with the saints. That doesn't have to be just on Sunday mornings. You can't be here on Sunday mornings. You can have a Bible study group in your home on Thursday nights. If you're with the saints, studying God's Word, seeking His Spirit. Maybe it means as a church we ought to discern and decipher true discipleship versus manufactured discipleship. What are we doing that's enabling true discipleship? Maybe it means you need to commit yourself to opportunities to be here. At the very least, it means we all need to let our perspectives change in understanding what the church exists for. She exists to glorify God through worship. She exists to glorify God through encouraging the spiritual growth of each other. Would you take just a moment here and pray? Would you ask God, first, what way do I need to grow? God, highlight some priority areas for me. Then would you also pray and ask, God, how can I help a brother or sister grow? And then thirdly, would you pray and ask God to bring into alignment your heart with the importance of being with brothers and sisters? It's one thing to listen to a sermon. It's another thing to reflect on that sermon and begin applying it. Would you take just a few moments and do that?
Our Father, we can sometimes just be too fast on Sunday mornings. We can sometimes be too event-like where we move on from one moment of the service to the next and to the next and to the next and to the next. You are the God of order, not the God of chaos, but sometimes we can be too structured or too ritualistic and we need to just stop and we need to be still and we need to be silent and we really need to let Your Word sit upon our hearts for a moment. Do we really believe anything that's been said this morning? Will it really affect anything in our lives? Father, we're not here for a polished service. We're not here to entertain. We're not here to make people feel like Everything went smoothly. We're here to meet with you. And to be changed by you. And to be brought into right fellowship and a right relationship with you through Christ. And enabled through your spirit to live the life worthy of Christ that we've been called to live. So we pause here. We ask for Your divine work upon our souls. Help us to prioritize worshiping You together. Help us to care about and prioritize the spiritual well-being of each other. That I bear some obligation and some responsibility for the person's spiritual well-being who sits ten rows behind me and five chairs next to me. That I am obligated to know their name, to know their hobbies, to know their life, to pray for them, to love them, to encourage them. What sort of people, God, might we be in terms of godliness and in terms of holiness and in terms of praising you and being used of you and, and knowing and walking with you if we will just but live this Christian life together? Lord, let Your Word and Your Spirit affect real change in our hearts to Your glory. It is our corporate concern and our corporate purpose as Your bride to lift each other up to greater faith, greater sanctification, greater following You in every area of life with our entire being. But as we said just a moment ago, we admit we cannot do that without Your Spirit's help. Having begun by the Spirit, we will not finish by the flesh. So pour Your grace on us, please, O Lord. 
motivate us. Stir us up to repentance and to faith and to joy and to eagerness to be together. Cause the young and the old to mingle. The black and the white. The male and the female. For here there is no slave or free, barbarian or Scythian, Greek or Jew, but Christ is all and in all. Bind us together in love, O Lord, that we may grow and that in growing we may honor and serve and glorify You. In Jesus' name, Amen.